once a senior minister of a church was asked to run a Sunday school for the day for a group of elementary students. When he was with the class, he decided he would approach the topic of the crucifixion. So he decided and asked, why did Jesus have to die? That's a simple question, right? Why did Jesus have to die? He got a lot of creative answers, but they were answers like you would expect. He died because uh, the Romans didn't like him. It was a political thing, and he died out of jealousy from the religious leaders, and he was a threat to society, and all of these kind of answers. And he was quite shocked that he got such good answers from elementary school kids, but they still did not actually cover why Jesus had to die. In this Easter service message, I approached the topic of why did Jesus have to die? It was quite shocking to the disciples that this is how the great story was going to end. It was a sudden twist in the narrative that they had been living out. Join me as I conclude our Lent series in the Gospel of John, and we discuss why is it that Jesus had to die, not just for the world, but for me in the world. Thank you, Marty. Boom. Conquered the grave. And that's what we're here to talk about, the conquering of the Messiah, the conquering of Jesus. If you've been following us, you've been following us through our Lent series in the Gospel of John. We've been working our way through the entire Gospel, and that's something we're going to try to do every year. We want to take an entire Gospel and look at it at this season of time. So if you're with us next year, we're going to be doing the same thing, but a different Gospel. We want to, as a church community, take in large chunks of scripture. That's something that I think that we often miss and that I can often miss. Often I focus in on my favorite verses or even my favorite chapters or my favorite stories, and I'll read those over and over again. Uh, but we want to take an opportunity to really get into a gospel every year, and we've been getting into John weeks ago. Before all of this started, we started going through this Lent season in John, reading and taking our turns going through me, Lieutenant Tabitha, and um, Joy. And if you've seen, it's, it's been building to something. There's been almost a gravity pulling. And that's something that uh, we've talked about over and over is this story of Jesus and how it's been building week after week after week, kind of trying to figure out where this is going. If you've been with us in the past, listened to our podcast or anything like that, uh, you've heard us talk about how uh, this story of Jesus, this story of Messiah, was something that Israel had been rehearsing over a long period of time. They had been rehearsing with each other and trying to figure out and getting into the scriptures. Even if you get into the, like, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the uh, community around Qumran, they had this idea that there might not even just be one Messiah. Maybe there's two Messiahs that show up. Maybe there's a king and a priest. And they started to think that because the idea of the Messiah started to get so big that they thought one person couldn't do this. There's no way this is about one person. So some people started to think, well, maybe the scriptures actually talk about more than one Messiah because of how big this job was. And in Israel's mind, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And they started to look at the scriptures and try to fill in the blanks. The difficult problem is there were a lot of blank spaces that they were trying to fill in. And they used their imagination a lot of times to fill in what it was going to look like. 
And at some point in Jesus's ministry, it stops looking like the story that they had been practicing. It stops looking like the narrative that they had been practicing. And they start to look at each other and say, what's going on? It really reminds me of the, the very first movie that my wife and I went to go see after we were married was the movie Up. It did not take me long sitting in that theater to have the same questions. Because we're sitting there, we're watching this cute movie, we're watching this cute couple, and all of a sudden the wife is gone. I have to tell you, all of a sudden I'm bawling my eyes out. This is not a movie to watch after you've first been married. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why are we sitting in this movie theater right now? Why are we here? This isn't the story that I signed up for. This is supposed to be Disney, right? And I'm sitting there thinking, I honestly thinking, maybe I just need to leave. This is too emotional. <laughs> At some point, the disciples thought that they had signed up for a certain story and it was not going the way that they expected. They thought they had signed up for these key things that the Messiah was supposed to do. Some of those key things that they thought the Messiah was supposed to do was one, cleanse the temple. They thought that Messiah would come. They had generations of these religious leaders that were imposing these rules and even payments and tributes and taxes and they were taking advantage of the people. As you read the prophets, the prophets explain how the leaders, the religious leaders, were leading the people astray. If you were with me the last time I spoke, I talked about the good shepherd and we talked about how the people needed a good shepherd. They had had enough bad shepherds, they wanted a good shepherd, so they're waiting for Messiah to show up. So the disciples think when the Messiah comes, all of Israel's thinking when Messiah comes, he's going to come and he's going to fix the religious system so that we can worship the way that we're supposed to worship. The other problem that Israel had consistently were foreign invaders. At some point, Shortly after the kingdom of Solomon, we see that everything starts to fall apart. Over the next hundred years, there's division and mistrust and wars. And eventually, foreign invaders come. And it's like Israel never existed. They're taken into captivity and gone to Babylon. And the disciples and the rest of Israel think the Messiah is going to show up. And that's going to be the end of this cycle of people conquering us and taking us over. He's going to deal with the world's powers. So they're waiting to see him fix worship, and they're waiting for him to fix the government. And the other thing that they're waiting for, one of the many probably, but one of the other things that they're waiting for is their sense of identity and purpose to be restored. Israel had a calling, and that calling had fallen away. It was gone. When they lost covenant with God, they lost their very identity and purpose. And they were looking for somebody to come back, fix worship, fix our government, fix our leadership, and fix us. Where has our identity gone? So they think that Messiah is going to show up as this military commander, high on a sword, high on a horse, sword in hand, shield over there. He's going to come through and wipe out all these foreign invaders. And he's going to come and he's going to teach the priests how to be true priests. He's going to be the high priest before God. He's going to fix it all. And when all of this gets going, Israel can finally be the way that it was always meant to be. But what happens? 
Lieutenant Tabitha hinted at it last week. She's talking about it. She's talking about this great, mighty Messiah coming in on this donkey. And everybody is saying, Hosanna, throwing down their palm branches. And they think, this is it. And they start to see, maybe they're following the wrong narrative. Maybe they're following the wrong story. What happened and what's going on? What's happening? And as you've read with us through Holy Week, we see the Passover meal and the supper, and we see Jesus heading toward it, and even though he keeps saying it, what does he keep saying to the disciples? He keeps saying that he is going to his death. But see, that doesn't fit their story, so they never hear it. They still think that they have it figured out. They have God figured out and how he's going to show up they understand how Messiah is going to show up. So they, they hear him, but they don't really hear him. They're still waiting for their story to come to fulfillment. So even as he's being taken, they're waiting. And if you've been following with us in our lecture se uh, Lenten series, you see that we're looking at John 18. So as we go to John 18, we see him that he's being arrested and the very first group that he comes before is through Annas and Caiaphas. These were two high priests of Israel. It gets a little confusing because it uses that term high priest over and over again. Annas was high priest at one time. And the Jews believe if you're high priest, you're high priest for life. And Caiaphas became high priest after him. So he's coming before these religious leaders. He's coming. It's so interesting that Jesus himself, high priest, right, is coming before the high priests. So you have this group of high priests. And what do they say? What are you doing? Who do you think you are? What's going on here? As you see, it says in verse 19. If you want to turn with me, you can. John 18, verse 19. I'll be reading from the ESV. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing back struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priests? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And he goes through this trial scene. What is so crazy about this trial scene is part of Jewish customs and Jewish law. If somebody's on trial and you do anything to them, it's considered punishment. At this point, Jesus is standing on trial before the religious leaders. On trial. Saying, what did I do wrong? And he takes all their accusations, he takes all their judgments, and then somebody next to him smacks him across the face. It may not seem much, but this is actually him receiving punishment for what he's being accused of. At this point, trial could be over. It could be gone. He sits here receiving the punishment from the religious leaders. Now, the disciples didn't even understand this. Even though they know Jesus is supposed to come and cleanse worship, 
They think he's going to cleanse worship by restoring the right things in the temple. When he comes in and he cleanses out the temple, they think this is what it looks like when Messiah cleanses the temple. But that's not actually what it looks like when Messiah cleanses the temple. It looks like a man on trial being struck in the face. At this moment, the disciples don't get it, but they will afterward. A lot of times they had to look back. Hindsight is 2020, they say. They had to look back and they see he is receiving the judgment and condemnation of religion upon himself. And then it transitions to Pilate. Here he goes before Pilate, and now he's on trial before the world government. At that point, Rome controlled much of the known world. They were the power and the force in the world. They had expanded. They didn't expand themselves just militarily, but in terms of culture, thoughts, ideas, architecture, music, religion, all these things. And Jesus is brought before the representative of the world's power. Now, what does it look like to the disciples when Messiah shows up? They're waiting for him to show up on a horse with a sword and shield. If you're watching The Chosen, like my family and I, we love it. At one point, Jesus is sitting before children, and he says to them in this movie, what does scripture say it looks like when Messiah shows up? Does it say that Messiah will come on a horse? Does it say that he's going to come with, with an, a soldier, an army, and that he's going to slaughter people? No, that's not what it says. If you read through the scroll of Isaiah, what does it say? It says that he takes the affliction on himself. And even here before Pilate, what do we see him doing? Pilate sits there and he's trying to figure out Jesus. In 1833, we see, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over, be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Boom. Boom. He is saying to Pilate, you don't know what you just became a part of. This catches Pilate off guard. Why is he cut off guard? I mean, to you and I, it might seem like he just said, my kingdom's not of this world. Because we look past the end of the story. We don't think about what Pilate is thinking. In Greek and Roman mythology, it's normal for people to be demigods walking the earth. Even now, we like stories like Zeus, Zeus, this demigod, half man, half God, walking around and fighting for the people. It was quite common in many different cultures to think that a God or some aspect of a God could come on the earth and do things for or against people. Now that last part is important because Pilate does not know what he has. All of a sudden, when Jesus is making claims about having a kingdom from the unseen spaces, Pilate is thinking to him, am I dealing with just a man? In one of the other Gospels, it talks about how suddenly Pilate's wife gets a dream and says, don't mess with that guy. 
You don't know what you're getting into. Stay away from it as far as possible. And Pilate tries to, but Pilate doesn't know what he's dealing with. He's thinking to himself, is this some kind of immortal walking on the earth that I'm talking to? I don't know that I want to mess with him. But at the same time, he has the pressure of his role in society. He has the pressure of Rome that he's trying to keep up. And eventually, he succumbs to the peer pressure and he judges Jesus. The world's power puts its condemnation and judgment on Jesus. Jesus takes it all. As if you've been following, we're coming up to it. Jesus has taken the condemnation of the worship and religious group upon himself. He's taking the condemnation and judgment of the world's powers and everything in it on himself. For Jesus, there's only one more thing left to do. Now again, what is going through the head of the disciples? They remembered, in the garden, Jesus said, I can call 12 legions of angels, and they'll come rescue me. So they're thinking, that's still out there somewhere, so let's see what happens. Only a few are brave enough to follow him to the cross. So he goes up to the cross, and he's waiting there, and people are even saying, why don't you pull yourself down? Come down from there if you're the Messiah. Call on angels. Call on your father. What are you doing? Show up. Now they're saying, show up and be Messiah. If you are the Messiah, show up. Why aren't you acting like it? Show up and be the Messiah. Because in their story, what does the Messiah look like? And what are they seeing? Are they seeing something that looks like God showing up? Is their world right now telling them that God has come? That God has sent his Savior? Do they see it in the world? What they actually see right now is another failed Messiah. At the moment Jesus dies, he says, it is finished. How do his hearers hear that? This is just the ending to another Messiah. If you look at Israel's history, about every hundred years in this time period, you see a Messiah pop up. Okay? You see the Maccabees pop up and they think that, oh, the Messiah has come. You see Jesus come as one of the Messiahs. You see this other guy, you know, named Simon Bar Kokhba. He shows up a little bit later. So you see every once in a while a Messiah show up, but they all have something in common. They dead. Now this looks like a common biography. If you follow biographies, how does every biography end? The person dies. It ends with their death. This is how a biography ends. So ends the biography of Jesus. The disciples think it's over. Right? They think it's gone. They think it's time to go home. And they do. They start to go home. There are two guys that don't go home right away. One is Nicodemus, who we talked about in John 3. And another one is a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. And they take Jesus' body. They bravely ask for it. They take his body to a nearby garden where there is an empty tomb. And they put him in the tomb in the garden. They set him up. They prepare his body according to custom and tradition. And then they walk away. Now, you don't know it, you don't see it, but this is the twist. John has been very sneaky in his gospel. 
What the readers do not know is that John has been continually moving us, not necessarily forward, but back to his very first statements, even as far back as John 1. Why does it look like this? If you study the ancient Near East traditions, they had a tradition of how you make an idol. So in the ancient Near East, they would have an artisan craft this vessel, this lifeless, inanimate object, this vessel. And after the vessel was created, they would go to a sacred space, like a garden. And they would set the vessel in the garden, and then they would leave as if it never happened. What do we see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea doing? They bring the lifeless vessel into the garden, and then they intend to go along their way as if it never happened. As N.T. Wright often says, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. They loved him, so they bury him, but then they decide to move on with life. This is the interesting thing about the Gospels. If Jesus had just died and stayed in the tomb, you could account for other things. You could even account for him being seen. People have experiences quite often when a loved one dies, but somehow somebody even miles away will say, oh, I saw such and such as this time. And you find out that's when the person died. Have you ever heard those stories? I think some of you are saying, yeah, I've heard those stories right now. A loved one come after death and people see it and experience it. So if Jesus had just appeared after his death, it could have just been attributed to those who loved him and are saying their final goodbyes. See, it only makes sense if something is happening here, if something is going on, if something more is happening. And what happens? So they take the lifeless vessel and they put into it, according to custom in the ancient Near East, then the spirit of the God would come into the vessel and bring it to life. Why is John so sneaky here? He's talking about creation. What looks to us like just a simple death and resurrection story is a loud statement from John that creation has started over. The disciples and the rest of the Jews were not expecting this kind of kickstart in this way. They weren't looking for it. They were hoping that one day, far into the future, when God's reign fully comes and Messiah has fully conquered all of his enemies, then if you were with us when we were talking about Nicodemus, Nicodemus couldn't understand it. Jesus is telling him the judgment day and the full restoration of all things is coming and is at hand and you don't even know it. And here in this story, John is reminding us, this is what the story has been about since the beginning in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word came in the flesh, in human form, and walked amongst us. He is going all the way back to John 1 so that we can see this is actually not a biography. I would argue that this gospel story is a genealogy. This is actually the story not of one man's life, 
This is actually the story of the start of a family. If you follow with me, John even tries to get to this in his gospel. In John 20, verse 30, I like it because my Bible gives me a heads up. It says, the purpose of this book as my title. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. This whole time, the Jews have been thinking the story was Messiah shows up and sets all things right. But that's not actually the story. The story is not Messiah comes to set all things right. The story is actually Messiah comes to restore you. That you may set all things right. That's actually the story that we're following. That's the story where we find ourselves. See, Jesus experiences all the things that we needed. Because if you remember, I said three things. Jesus is cleansing worship. He is cleansing the temple. He is cleansing the world's powers, the world leaders, the governmental structure. And he is restoring the identity of Israel. Jesus came. He receives all condemnation. He receives all evil. He receives all punishment. He receives all sickness. Eventually, he receives all death. He has been bringing everything into himself so that it can be dealt in him, so that in him he can restore our true identity so that we can finally be as we were created to be. That's why John goes back to the creation story when he's talking about in the garden, the inanimate vessel receiving, being filled with the life-giving Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the vessel. In the beginning was Adam, and it's why we call Jesus the new Adam. We didn't know this whole time. John has been telling us we are empty vessels that God has been filling. The story is that you are the empty vessel that God has been filling. The whole story was to fill you up with the truth of Jesus so that you could be full of life and that you could give that life abundantly. Isn't that what happened? We studied it in John as we've been following this series. Jesus shows up, his very first miracle is at the wedding of Cana. And what does he do? He fills the vessels. He takes the vessels that were meant to be set aside as an act of worship and he fills them with his life-giving spirit. He fills it with the water of the Holy Spirit, comes into the empty vessel, and then is poured out by the servants to all. And the master of the feast gets up and says, the best wine was saved for last. You are the wine. He says it again in John 4. We see the woman coming to the well, the Samaritan woman that is looking for new life because she can't live in her old life anymore. And what does she seek? The living water. To fill her bucket? No, to fill her. 
This entire time we've been watching the gospel lead up to this moment for Jesus to restore the vessels so that they can hold his spirit and they can give it to the whole world. Because what do we need right now? We need vessels that are filled with the spirit and the power of God and unleashing it onto the world. That's the story that we're a part of. That's the story that we have been called to because that's the truth. You have been called by name. You have been called by your God. You have been called to receive the story of Jesus so that you can be restored. He has taken every ounce of anger and condemnation that was fracturing you, that's been breaking you, every discouragement, every loss of hope, everything that has been working against you has been dealt with in Jesus so that you are restored by name, so that in his name, you are sent to the world because that is what the world is missing and that is what the world has always needed. The world has not always needed Messiah in the way that we thought and even in the way that some of us teach. We didn't realize that we are a major part of this story. This is something I got out to if you listen to me about the Good Shepherd in your song. What is your life song that you're supposed to be pouring out right now? What does it look like? Are you doing it? Do you want things to change? You can look at the world right now and you can say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. This isn't the story I signed up for. This isn't how I thought this was going to go. Or you can grasp the gospel and the power of what Jesus did for you and shove it in the world's face and say, this is the true story that I'm living out. And that's what I invite you to now. Have you heard his call? to this life? Have you been following the wrong narrative? Have you been following the wrong story? Are you letting the world try to dictate to you what this story is supposed to be like? Because the only place you can find the true narrative is in this. That is what we use this for. This teaches us what his voice sounds like. This teaches us his song. This teaches us the story that we're supposed to live by. This is it. That's what we celebrate on Easter. We don't celebrate the death and the resurrection as if now we've completed the biography of Jesus. We celebrate it because it's actually genealogy and it is the birth of the church into the very mission of God. This is the moment that you get to join the story. Everything else was just an intro. And now we get to continue this until its full end. And its full end is... Messiah sitting as king above all things. Are you going to join that story or are you going to live in the old narrative? The choice is yours today. And I'm going to pray for you now that you would hear his call, that you would hear his voice and step into your story. Father, we are so grateful that you have sent the Son that you sent the Son on our behalf. You sent the Son to deal with everything that was breaking us apart, everything that was destroying us, everything that was killing us. 
every false idea, every false mental scheme, every lie, every sickness. You have sent Messiah into the world and he has dealt with it all. Not so that we can say that that's the end of the story, but we can say it's the beginning. We're celebrating the beginning of the story. I ask for those of who have not heard your call clearly or who have not responded, I pray that even right now that they would hit their knees and surrender to the voice of their Lord and Messiah who loves them, who has died for them, and who wants so much more than what they've been living. May they receive you today, Lord. And for those that have already heard your call and said yes, but somehow missed the story, just like the disciples, they, they missed it and they go home along their way because hope deferred makes the heart sick. And they needed to hear a fresh call from you. And you do call to them from the shore. There are some right now that feel like they're so scattered on the waters but you're standing on the shore calling to them, saying, come home. We say to those lost, come home. We say to those that grew up in the church and left, come home. In the mighty name of Jesus, come home, come home. Holy Spirit, speak to them now where they are. Help them to hear your voice say, come home, come home. And for those of us struggling with the temptation to give up, fill us anew with your power. Fill us anew. For those of us who sit back and we even cry out that our eyes are dry and that our prayers are cold, help us, Lord. When we are tired and our faith is old, help us, Lord. Help us remember you. We may sit there just like the Keith Green song. What can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil and the wine has come, and it's for you. And I pray that you receive it. Lord, help them receive it. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for stopping by. We love it when you visit us here at the Bay Ridge Salvation Army. You can find out more about us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to help support what we do, simply text BRLOVE to 41444. That's BRLOVE to 41444.